It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 128. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. It just dawned on me as I was saying 128, we finally hit a round number. Like a binary. Exactly. It's a binary uh, round number. Perfect binary number. Well, actually, <laughs> no, 127 would have been. Well, it depends all, on know, which way you're looking, all, right? If, all ones, right? This is like yes. ones, but a bunch of zeros after it. Yes, is, that's whatever. That's a round number. Yeah, it's like when, <laughs> it, well, yeah, it's like in computer science, you know, people, oh, you know, with eight bits, you can count up to 256. No, you can't. <laughs> you need nine <laughs> bits to do that. You can only exactly. count to 255. <laughs> what so. I love to tell people is that next year I turn 40. Yeah, there you go. So. <laughs> or one, zero, zero. No, yeah. no, no. Start giving your... Hey, you know, arrange the birthday candles. It's ones and zeros. There you go. Sure. That would actually would be a good birthday cake. You just put out like a series of eight or nine or 10 or however many candles, and you only light the ones that are on. <laughs> I'd love it. <laughs> that, that way you could you could get away with, let's see, six, so seven candles. Yeah. That's all you ever need. That's all you need. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, you can go, go 63 years without needing that seventh one. So there you go. Yeah. Um, so what we wanted to do today uh, is talk about, we're going to do another uh, single topic episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've suggested, and Gary's reluctantly agreed, <laughs> that, um, that Amazon Web Services is something worth talking about. The reason I wanted to talk about it now is because uh, we're actually just a couple of months away from, uh, in in past, um, you know, a bunch of, of, I'll just call it political turmoil in the United States. And one of the side effects or one of the things that happened when all that was going on was that a particularly notable website uh, for one side of the discussion got taken down by Amazon. And I want to talk about um, how that's possible and you know how the way I've been describing it is, you know, how can a bookstore take down a popular website? And of course, they're they're much more than a bookstore. And I think that's worth uh, understanding, just how a lot of the resources on the internet um, are deployed, and uh, who's who's you know who's behind them, who's providing them. Um, the website in question, I am going to mention it. It's Parler.com, of course, and um, you know, obviously. This is such a non-political podcast. We're not talking about, you know, taking sides or anything silly like this. Um, But the bottom line is that the website was taken down uh, for a variety of reasons that I'll talk about after I talk about uh, exactly what the, what the deal is with Amazon. Yeah. uh, Basically the way I understand it mm -hmm. is everybody thinks that Google and Apple and Microsoft run the internet, but in fact, it's Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> they run a really, really big part of it. That's for mm. sure. And a lot of people don't really realize that they're the folks behind a lot of what we're doing. So I think what we need to do, though, is we need to talk a little bit about what it means to host a website to begin with. Mm-hmm. And normally, uh, like, you know, when when you see the advertisements on TV, as you did for a while, you know, GoDaddy was selling domains and, you know, this hosting service, that hosting service, what they're selling you is essentially, or what they're renting you, is essentially a slice of a computer, right? You are on something that actually uh, looks an awful lot like a PC on your desk or on the floor next to it. It might have a physical, different physical configuration for being in a data center, but honestly, it really is just a PC. It may be a very strong one, maybe a very powerful one. The 
the basic kind of, of website, when you go out and you just sort of set up your own website with your own domain, uh, you're getting a slice of one of those PCs. In other words, there are probably anywhere from 100 to, in some cases, a few thousand other websites that are all hosted on that one machine. Uh, that is one of the reasons that uh, sometimes you'll have performance issues and 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 so on. So a hosting company, and I'm talking about you know folks like GoDaddy and Bluehost and and HostGator and and you know any of a number of other of the hosts that you may have heard of. That's fundamentally what they're selling you is they're sending you a slice of time on a machine in their data center. And of course, they've got hundreds and thousands of of those machines because they're hosting thousands upon thousands of of uh, websites typically small ones. Now, the next level up um, is, I think it's I think it's what you're using, Gary. I know it's what I'm using, and that's what I call, uh, what's called a virtual host. Mm-hmm. Rather than um, giving you just, you know, here's a website on a machine, they're actually giving you a complete virtual machine. So for example, um, the server that's hosting Ask Leo, I have access to a complete installation of, uh, of a Linux distribution from top to bottom. Um, I log in as root. I, you know, I'm, I'm the super user on the system. I can create websites. I can manage email. I can do all of the nitty gritty stuff at the lowest level you can um, on a on a on a, a window. Or I'm sorry, on a Linux installation. Didn't have to be Linux. There are in fact Windows virtual machines that you could also end up. Um, using for uh, for your virtual hosting if you happen to be, say, a Windows shop that happens to be your expertise for this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line here is that rather than um, sharing a single machine with maybe a few thousand websites, you're now sharing one machine still, but it's typically a fewer number of other people using that. And they don't see you. They don't know that you're on the same machine. You don't know who else is on your machine. And in fact, it can change without notice and without your without your noticing. So um, uh, I wasn't sure if, if I couldn't remember, Gary, if you're in that same situation or not, where you've got a virtual machine somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I, I just use a virtual machine. I think at the same company you do or you did. Yeah, I'm, and, I'm hosting and, at Liquid Web these days yeah. and, and have been for multiple years. Been quite happy with them. Um, it's, it's you know, the machine's good. Um, I'm heading up to, uh, I'm pushing the limits on uh, what their biggest virtual machine is really capable of. So the next thing that I do might be something different. But for the time being, um, I'm very, very happy and, and ask Leo. And all of my domains, actually, all of my websites are on that one machine. So in a way, I'm kind of like my own hosting company. I have this mm-hmm. virtual machine, and I've got all these different websites on it. It just happens to be that askleo.com is the uh, the biggest and the one with the most traffic. Yeah, I think for both of us, uh, the, the type of service we're using was originally meant for resellers. Like if you and I wanted to start a business where we hosted people's websites. Yes, and there's a lot of stuff in there that are buttons and switches and stuff for doing that. And it's like, no, I don't care about any of that. All this is me. These are all my websites. But I could start my own business and, you know, exactly. have and it's somebody very, pay money. Yeah. For all we know, some of these other hosting companies, maybe the smaller ones, that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Right? They, oh, I'm they've sure. got a virtual machine at some other hosting company themselves. And all they're really doing is reselling the slices that they happen to set up using this management interface. Yeah, I've noticed the same thing. The the, the management interface um, that I'm using, and I, I don't know if you're using the same one, is cPanel. Mm-hmm. And yes. um, it's designed for exactly, as you say, um, hosts 
you know, the hosting companies managing multiple different customers sharing a single machine. So yes, some of the things that are set up to protect this website from that website, um, in most cases, I don't care, right? I, yeah. I'm both websites, so I trust myself. And sometimes it can even actually get in the way in the sense that somebody's at my door. The, <laughs> it can actually get in the way in the sense that sometimes on one website, I want to access what's coming from another website. Mm-hmm. Um, and because this protection is in place, it at least makes it harder. And I end up having to do things that in a shared situation would be considered really, really bad practice. But since I own the entire virtual machine, it doesn't really matter. Right. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. So that's what we're running. Most, A lot of the websites you're dealing with these days are on these so-called virtual servers um, or on shared hosting. Now, I want to drop back just a little bit and talk about Amazon. Mm. Amazon started, gosh, however many, you know, two and a half, three decades ago. And they started building out an online bookstore. Mm-hmm. That's where they started. They started out as the world's biggest bookstore and their aspirations have continued to grow and grow and grow uh, so that they're doing way, way, way more than that. But one of the things that they did as they were building out their own infrastructure is First, they moved to their own infrastructure. So rather than buying or renting servers from someone else, they own their own servers. They have their own data center. Um, when you are buying something on Amazon, you're buying it from, you know, using the computers, the hosts, the website, whatever. It's all owned by Amazon from top to bottom. As they were building this out, they realized that, you know, we've got this nifty technology. We've got this stuff that we're building up for ourselves. Wouldn't it be neat if we could generate a little extra revenue on the side by letting other people use it? And that is essentially the genesis of what we now know as AWS or Amazon Web Services. Mm. Um, And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, um, AWS actually might be making more money than what you and I would traditionally consider to be Amazon.com. In other words, the computing infrastructure that they put together and started selling as an afterthought uh, is actually one of their major, major revenue generators uh, for the company. Actually, anticipating that coming up, I've been looking that up. And it's not as big as I thought, but it definitely is big. It's still not... uh, really near what they make in online sales. Okay. Like, you know, books and other products and stuff like that. Although gross or profit. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. It's well, you don't have all the information. You know, the a lot of their stuff, you know, when you buy a book or groceries or whatever it is from Amazon, it's a very narrow profit margin kind of thing. Right. Whereas web services could be a pretty big profit margin. So yeah, net versus gross. Yeah, uh, yeah it's very possible yeah. that they probably get more profit, at least off of the the computing, just because the margins are better, and they're in such high demand. So, so what is it that Amazon provides to um, uh, the internet, the, the the web developers, the folks like you and me who are building out websites for wanting to do online services? Well, there's a bunch, and I wanted to start with a couple of the real basic ones. And in fact, I want to start with the one that you've probably heard about more than any of the others. Every once in a while, um, you hear about these 
uh, security lapses. It's not a breach. It's not um, you know somebody hacking in somewhere. It's that somebody left some information exposed publicly on the internet. Anybody who happened to know that it was there could go in and get it, could go in and copy it, could go read it, whatever. Sometimes it's totally benign. Sometimes it's very embarrassing. But the bottom line is, um, you know, it wasn't supposed to be public in the first place. And when the people set it up, it got set up as public access. Those, the term you'll often hear when that happens are S3 and buckets. S3, which stands for Simple Storage Service, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is essentially nothing more than cloud storage. It's a place to put data, lots and lots of data. And buckets are the top level of how you organize them. So if you were to think of all of S3, um, you know, your S3 account as a drive, a bucket would be like the top level directory and you can do whatever you want in the directories, you know, in, in what in inside of each bucket. Uh, permissions are accessed Typically, they can do permissions at almost any granularity, but generally when you set up a bucket, you say what the default permissions should be, whether or not it's going to be public or private or who gets access, who doesn't. And uh, that then is inherited, but with, um, inherited by everything you put inside of that bucket. It used to be <laughs> that buckets defaulted to being public and it wasn't particularly obvious that they were. Um, things after the number of, of uh, security oversights and data leakages that have happened because of insecure buckets, um, I have noticed that in managing, uh, you know, my own uh, S3 um, storage, that um, they have given significantly more prominence to the fact that what you're about to create is completely public and anybody could look at it. So hopefully, people who are setting up new S3 buckets are at least paying attention to what is hopefully better, uh, more uh, obvious information about what it is they're letting people access or not. But the bottom line is that S3 is a very, very popular storage service. And literally that's all it is, is storage. And it's very possible that some of the cloud storage services you're using um, that aren't Microsoft and aren't Google because they have their own cloud services that compete with this. Um, you know, for all I know, I think Dropbox might be, I know that Flickr is a good example. Flickr is using S3. Flickr uses um, Amazon Web Services to store uh, uh, the files, the photos, the whatevers. You wouldn't know it to look at it because of course Flickr has their own application and whatever, but underneath the hood, you know, behind the scenes, they are using Amazon Web Services uh, storage. And that's a common thread here with a lot of what is going on with Amazon is there's a lot of this behind the scenes, under the hood, you wouldn't know to look at it. Huh. Amazon is in the background of a lot of popular services. Now, the other one that I wanted to start with as kind of a basic introduction to AWS is uh, what they call EC2 or their Elastic Compute Cloud. Um, that is almost directly analogous to the virtual servers that Gary and I are running that you can, um, um, you know, you basically can sign up, get yourself a server and poof, you've got your own Windows box running in the cloud. You've got a Linux box running in the cloud. You can set up your web server. You can set up whatever else it is you want on there. And in fact, that's how a number of websites that you and I might visit throughout the day uh, are in fact implemented as. They are nothing more than a virtual server 
running in the Amazon warehouse or running in the Amazon data center uh, and uh, accessing probably um, Amazon S3 for their storage. So what you and I might see as, you know, xyz.com, which provides this wonderful service for millions of people, um, is in fact nothing more than something that's been implemented using Amazon's hardware. So the question then is, well, why do people do that? Why, why, what's the advantage of something like Amazon over more traditional hosting uh, like you and I use, or uh, like somebody who is just setting up a simple website might use? There are a couple of different things about Amazon that make it very, very different. Um, I, I will just, I will tell you one of the things that really makes it different that is kind of frustrating from the development point of view is that it is a very complex, right? Amazon Web Services is mm -hmm. definitely not for the faint of heart. You do want to know what you're doing uh, before you dive into anything beyond um, even just S3, right? S3 is something that, that a lot of people can use, a lot of people do use, but once you start getting into how do I set up a server, how do I set up some of the other functionality and services that they provide, um, it gets really complicated really quick. Right. That aside, there are three, what I call three different uh, fundamental distinctions that make Amazon Web Services really, really um, enticing to uh, services or sites or um, you know, online companies of almost any scale. One is their pricing model. Um, I pay for my server, whether it's running or not. Now, granted, I want it to be running 24-7, so it's always running. But if I, if I turn it off, if for some reason I shut it down, I'm still paying every month. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's, that's the exact same model you've got, Kara. You're mm -hmm. paying no, sure. every month. But again, we're running our servers 24-7. There are definitely scenarios um, that I'll talk about in a moment where um, uh, that may not be what you always want to do. So what Amazon does is that they charge based on usage. So you're not paying per month, you're paying per minute um, in the case of computing resources. And you're paying uh, per, I think it's... Um, megabyte or maybe gigabyte for storage um, uh, usage. So you're really only paying for the resources you are actually using with a very small granularity. So for example, last month I fired up uh, one of these EC2 servers as an experiment and played with it a little bit and shut it down. Cost me 34 cents. <laughs> not the kind of a thing, right, that you would that you would encounter in more traditional hosting. So pricing is number one. Pricing scales based on what you use. If you don't need a lot, you pay a lot. And if you do need a lot, of course, yes, you can throw more hardware, more resources at the problem for um, you know, a commensurate amount of money. That's the second part of what makes them so interesting is their scaling model. The more you use, of course, the more you pay, but they also have everything they do designed to be scalable. So when you think about disk storage, well, that's easy, right? You just, you add more disks and actually that's all transparent to you. There is no storage limit in S3. You just keep throwing stuff up there. And as long as you pay the bill for how much you've got stored, um, you're, you're in fine shape. When it comes to uh, uh, computing resources, like these virtual servers, that gets really, really interesting. So the reason I said earlier that at some point, 
I'll have to change the technology underneath Ask Leo is like I said, I'm, I'm kind of sort of maxing out what the, the virtual machine I'm on right now is capable of. I have two choices. I could go to truly dedicated hardware. There is literally a physical PC in a data center somewhere that is mine and only mine. The other option is to use something like Amazon's EC2. And what I would do is I would set up a server and other services that I'll talk about also in a minute mm -hmm. that would allow me to, you know, five, six days a week, askleo.com is pretty slow. So I'll just have one server. But once a week, like newsletter day, where my traffic is at its highest, I can automatically spin up a second server and have that transparently get added to the hardware that is serving my website. So if, as the demand on my website gets higher, I can simply literally add more hardware to the problem uh, transparently. And that's exactly what a large number of, a lot of the larger services that are using AWS do, is that they have you know, some fundamental idea of what it is they want to do or what the resources are going to take. But they design it in such a way that when they have a traffic spike or when they have an unexpected need or you know, when something happens where, gee, I wish we would have had a bigger computer, instead... They just add more computers. They can add two, they can add a dozen. I mean, you can spread your load across multiple servers if the software is written correctly. And of course, mm. uh, as it turns out, uh, WordPress, which is the, the the software that I use and I think you use for some things, um, oh, yeah. is indeed uh, written in such a way that you can uh, distribute it across multiple machines to distribute the load. So that's called something called load balancing. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the bottom line is that this ability to scale the amount of hardware that is servicing your website, that is servicing your application, your online application, uh, automatically and transparently in response to need is huge. That really is big. Um, and I, the, the experiment that I actually ran last week or actually last month uh, was to just see what it would take to make that happen. I actually spun up uh, two servers and had them set up in this so-called load balanced scenario. Uh, tried it out, see what would happen, you know, added a server, took down a server, um, just sort of made sure that everything was still responsive along the way. And yeah, that's probably what the next generation of Ask Leo will end up looking like. It'll be some kind of a, um, a multi-server starting out as a single server instance because I only need a single server most of the time, but in a situation where I'm prepared to spin up another copy of that server should I need to. So scaling, pricing, scaling, and then I want to talk about distribution. Uh, distribution is big in the sense that uh, one of the things I think that a lot of people don't intuitively grasp is just how, not necessarily how big the internet is, but how big the planet is. And by that, I mean, uh, it, it always amazes me when I take a look at my own statistics for, uh, you know, obviously it's a, it's an English site. It's, it's uh, written in American English. It's one of those things where I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm targeting the English speaking uh, uh, world. And yet I get visitors from all over the planet. And I want, certainly some companies 
that's part of their business model. They need to be able to cover the entire planet. And that's one of the things that Amazon does well with the Amazon Web Services. They have data centers everywhere. They have storage everywhere. They have choices you can make as a, um, a systems engineer when you're setting up your system. So you know what? Not only do I want two servers, but I want one of them to be in Hong Kong. And I want one of them to be here in, in the United States. And I want another one to be in Europe somewhere so that um, the people in those areas, I'm able to serve more quickly because my hardware is closer to them. So Amazon has a, num a fair amount of, of uh, infrastructure dedicated to being able to service, access clients, customers around the planet. Um, and again, it's all building up of you know their own scale. They are huge to begin with. They're a very big store. Um, and all of this not only allows them to leverage this hardware for their own uses, but it allows them to resell um, this, this hardware for so many other uh, services and sites. Huh. I need to take a quick drink. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, the the only thing so far that I've used that you've mentioned for Amazon is I did for a while use an S3 mm -hmm. bucket. Um, I did that for um, my podcast for a while. I was trying to find a place to put the podcast episodes for MacMost, mm -hmm. which are videos. So they take up uh, not only a lot of storage space, but a lot of bandwidth because people download them and they're big files. I couldn't put them on my server because it would be very expensive bandwidth wise to have mm -hmm. thousands of people downloading videos. Um, so I was looking for another place to put them and I tried S3 for a while. And the funny thing was, uh, first I didn't find it cost effective at the time. Right. Uh, it still had thousands of downloads. It still added up at fractions of a penny per download to be, right. you know, a, too big of an expense. And, but the funny thing was, is that uh, just this week, I was reminded that I have that S3 bucket. Like you said before, I'm not using it. So being charged by the byte or whatever wasn't costing me anything. Right. So the fact that the bucket's empty and there's no links to it now means that I don't get charged anything so I can keep it around. Um, but what, you know, of course, has happened with, uh, that you mentioned earlier, is that originally S3 buckets were by default just public. You could just, you know, if you knew where something was, you could just get it. Mm -hmm. There was no security. And um, and so, of course, my S3 bucket is that old, so it was set up that way. Uh, so I got a notification this week saying, you know, you have an S3 bucket and it is not secured. Right. Now, it made me think for a second. It's like, oh, I do. And I was like, well, wait a minute. That was my <laughs> podcast bucket. Of course, it's not secured. I wanted people to be able to download the podcast. The whole yep. idea for what I wanted to do was to have completely open access to those files so people could use their podcasting apps or whatever it was to subscribe to my podcast and download it. If I had secured it, it would have defeated the purpose. So, um, so yeah, so strangely enough, uh, you wanted to talk about Amazon S3. And this week I got a, an email from Amazon, um, AWS that... Yeah. I've gotten that same same message from them and it's always the same thing. It's like, you know, yes, that's that's intentional. This bucket is supposed yes. to be public. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the things I did a couple of years ago, um, just cleaning up my server, is I moved a few of my sites that were just static, right? Mm -hmm. No running programs to be S3 buckets. You can do that. You can have a completely static website implemented as only an S3 bucket. 
so for example, uh, one of my example websites is um, coincidentally reallybigbookstore.com. That happens to be a domain that I own. Hmm. And um, it's a, it's a site. It's a one page site that says, you know, yep, this is an example, yada, yada. And that's a S3 bucket that is completely public and then associated with the domain, reallybigbookstore.com. Um, and it's, um, it's useful for that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Anything that is, um, static. One of the things that I use S3 for, um, I still use it for my videos, uh, the ones that I host myself, but, Mm -hmm. um, I have a CDN in front of that. So what happens is the videos live on S3, but I don't get the bandwidth charges because it's the CDN that copies them out once. Oh, okay. It's the one that's serving it out that final, you know, to the last connection. Um, so, you know, like a video uh, might get picked up once a day, even if it's getting, you know, viewed thousands of times a day. Huh. Okay. So that actually dovetails into some of the other services or some of the services that, that Amazon Web Services provides. Um, the subheading I've got here is simply so many services. Um, it mm. is incredible the number of services that are available using Amazon Web Services. Uh, we, you know, we've talked some about, you know, already website or, or server hosting. You can get your virtual server there and you can store data there. They will sell you domains. They will um, host your DNS, the thing that maps the really big bookstore.com domain to the IP address of whatever it is that's hosting it. Um, they have security management. Uh, it's one of the things that clearly they've improved over the last few years um, that allows you to do all sorts of granular security um, and permissions to various accounts, various services, various individuals based on exactly what level of access they truly need. Um, in my case, you know, I'm a one user shop. So I have total access to absolutely everything. But if I wanted to, for example, set up um, one of my assistants as being able to completely manage one of these static websites, um, I could indeed just set up a user in uh, what's called, I think it's IAM, um, something Internet Access Manager or something like that, that um, would give that person specific permissions to be able to do this and only this to that and only that. Um, it's incredibly granular and it applies across all of the uh, Amazon web server or web services services. Um, on a more advanced note, um, I talked about load balancing. What really is load balancing itself is another service. So if I've got these two servers someday that are um, accessing or actually providing askleo.com uh, its website, they sit behind this service called a load balancer. And it's the load balancer that takes care of uh, making sure that you know this server gets some data and this server has to do some work. And when one's overloaded, um, the other one gets more. And if we add a third one, it sort of hooks it in all magically. Um, it's very transparent. It's very cool. But that's what load balancing is all about. And that's one of the, um, the big draws to uh, Amazon Web Services. Uh, databases. We haven't even touched on databases. Normally, um, the machines that you and I have set up, they have their databases hosted on the machine. Uh, but in fact, 
Amazon has multiple different kinds of database technology available uh, that is hosted not necessarily on your virtual machine, but is hosted elsewhere. And that's the kind of a thing that allows these multi-servers to actually access the same information. So rather than having one server with a single database on it, you would have multiple servers, each accessing a shared database that's actually somewhere else. Um, and that's one of the, the things I had to confirm that WordPress was actually okay with. Um, and apparently um, they really are. There are definitely some considerations along the way. Um, AWS also has special tools for mobile development, for mobile app development. They have tools for developers. Um, you may have heard of GitHub that Microsoft purchased not that long ago as a source code repository. Amazon has a Git compatible service that's available. Where things get really, really interesting, and I, I call it sort of off the wall, um, is Amazon has some really, what I would call, bleeding edge services available to anyone who wants to play with them. And by bleeding edge, I mean things like, you wanna do something with a blockchain? There's an app for that. Um, you wanna be dealing with the internet of things? Yep, there's support specifically for that. There are tools and technologies available in AWS. Uh, you wanna you know, use machine learning? Uh, then you know you want to go and compete with with Elon Musk's Tesla's self-driving cars because that's what he's using to uh, to make all that happen. You can set up machine learning hmm. in Amazon Web Services. There are services that will do both voice recognition and transcription, um, and the other way around that will read you text uh, using any of several different voices. Again, all of these as services made available to. Um, the online services or the online websites that you and I might be using. There's a bunch of, I've stumbled into, there's a bunch of gaming support. There's a bunch of VR and AR stuff. Um, there's even stuff about robotics, which I wasn't actually aware of uh, for some time. Huh. Wow. They, they have literally hundreds of different services available to the uh, uh, to the, the internet community and to anybody who wants to use and um uh, you know, you know, make use of any of these uh -huh. different kinds of things. Like I said, it's not for the faint of heart, uh, but it is incredibly cool and incredibly powerful. Now, if you want to get a taste for exactly what all of these um, uh, services are, or at least what they're called for, and I will say that Amazon does have some interesting naming conventions. I won't even call them conventions. They just have interesting names for all these different services. Like their DNS service is called Route 53. I have no idea why. Huh. Um, it's all at aws.amazon.com. And if you scroll down, you will find a section called Explore Our Products. And that lists uh, everything I've talked about and a whole lot more. So hmm. with that as the background, let's bring it all back to Parler or to any web service website that happens to use AWS infrastructure. Hmm. Um, my assumption is uh, Parler was a social media uh, 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 social media site, right? They were a competitor. In fact, they're back somewhere else, but they are a competitor to places like Facebook and Twitter and so forth that allow people to interact with each other socially. They have users, they've got databases, they've got web pages, you can upload, you can view pictures, all that kind of stuff. My assumption and it is just an assumption, but it's probably not that far off, is that they were probably implemented as some number of EC2 servers 
um, and uh, using S3 storage uh, to back it all up. Amazon, like any host, be it the Bluehosts, the host gators, the shared hosting, be it Liquid Web, uh, you know, for the virtual servers that you and I use, they all have terms of service. They all do. Yep. Uh, the terms of services aren't necessarily the same. Um, there are some services, for example, that are more porn friendly than others. There are some services that are more, I don't know how you want to call it, um, free speech is probably the wrong way to put it, but less yeah. restrictive in terms of what they're willing to allow on their hardware than others. And the ultimate thing is that um, Parler apparently crossed a line with respect to what Amazon was willing to allow their hardware to be used for. That's what terms of service really is. When you start using somebody else's hardware, you have agreed to play by their rules. And that's not unusual. That's not uncommon. Even I have to play by the rule, you know, by the, by the rules that are set up um, by Liquid Web. Um, and for those folks that I've got, you know, I've got some friends that are hosting out at HostGator. I'm sorry, at uh, GoDaddy. There's terms of services there too. So uh -huh. that's all that really happened. The surprise for so many people is that Amazon was involved at all. The reason is that Amazon is behind through Amazon Web Services such a huge, huge part of the internet, the websites, and the online services that you and I may all take for granted. Um, even sites like um, uh, you know, Parler uh, or popular sites that um, we use every day may be using Amazon infrastructure behind them and we would just never know. But if they ever crossed Amazon, if they ever violated their terms of service, they would find out and have to move as Parler had to do. So that's kind of, of, of uh, an explanation of exactly why Amazon uh, has such a big, big presence in the infrastructure of the internet and um, how things like that can happen. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, this actually um, is something that you and I have talked about many times in the past and other people that are our friends that are internet, internet entrepreneurs is when you build your thing on top of somebody else's thing. Yes. Uh, you always have to think about the fact that you've built your, your stuff on somebody else's thing uh, and they could uh, things, you know, they could change things. They could kick you off. They could do all sorts of stuff. And it, it, it's a little bit of a different level here. You know, Amazon's built this, you know, highly technical, you know, server infrastructure, but it's kind of the same as say, if you decide I want to build something online but instead of my own website, I'm going to build something on Facebook, right? Which you know then gets you into trouble if something happens to your Facebook account. Or like this uh, past week, another big story has been what's going on in Australia, yes, with, with Facebook. Um, you know where uh, the Australian government has said, um, well, uh, Facebook is using news articles from various news sources, but they're not paying for it. And Facebook says we're not doing that. People are linking to them on their, you know, on their walls you know, on Facebook. Um, and if they want, they should be able to. And Australia said, nope, we think uh, Facebook should have to pay the news sources for those articles. Right. And Amazon said, well, we disagree. So we'll simply take away the ability to post uh, news stories on Facebook Australia. Problem solved. Now there's nothing to charge us for because we're not using news articles. But what happened was 
it turns out a bunch of people had built stuff on Facebook. Like I read one article about a company that had built, uh, or not a company, it was an organization that had built, you know, all this stuff around Facebook and informing people, you know, for good purposes of various services and things and all that. And now suddenly um, all that's gone because right. Facebook said, no, you can't post articles anymore. And I first thing I thought is, well, why did they build that on Facebook? If you wanted to, if that was important and you needed to build something online, build your own website. And of course, ironically, they probably would have built that on Amazon Web Services. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, it's it's the kind of thing where I, I see people that do what you and I do, but they'll do it on Facebook. It's like a Facebook page. Right. They spend all their time promoting their Facebook page. Uh, building their Facebook page, getting more followers on their Facebook page. And it's like, Ooh, be careful. Right. You're building on top of somebody else's thing. Digital sharecropping is the, is the term I've heard used. You're basically farming somebody else's land. Um, exactly. And Amazon web services is at a different level, but it still is kind of the same thing. Like I, I think you having built stuff on Amazon web services, you could probably move all your important stuff off of Amazon web services easily Mm-hmm. and place it somewhere else. Um, same thing with me. If I decided to relocate, as we said earlier, I'm using uh, Liquid Web, uh, which is you know a small independent uh, you know ho- web host. If I wanted to, since I'm based on you know WordPress mostly for most of my stuff, I could move that to Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. And if for some reason Amazon Web Services said, "Oh, we don't want uh, tech tutorials," on we don't Amazon do web services. <laughs> PC um, <laughs> then I could be like, oh, and I could, since I own the domain name, I could move to another host. Um, and it's important to kind of always have that strategy. Uh, What's interesting about it, though, is when you think about it, everybody is at the mercy of somebody else. Yeah. By that, I mean, you know, if you build on Facebook, you're at the mercy of Facebook's whims. It almost mm-hmm. seems like, right? An algorithm change causes your traffic to go down. You violate some random rule that you weren't aware of or that somebody claims you have no recourse for, you've got a problem. Great. You build your own service. You build your own website. Well, now you're you're subject to the terms of service of your web host. Mm-hmm. Well, great. You decide to become your own web host. Well, now you're you're at the terms of you know, you're subject to the terms of service of wherever you're building your machines or wherever you're building mm-hmm. out your servers. Yeah. Great. I'll buy my own hardware and put it in a data center. Well, now you're at the mercy of the owners of the building of the data center. They are the ones that say no, you can't do that kind of stuff here. Even if you do find someone, then you're still at the mercy of whoever provides the uplink to the internet. You're always buying some kind of service from someone else in order to get your information online. And everyone in that chain can impose or will have their own terms of service that you have to live by. Now, what a a service like Parler does, for example, they found out that a lot of places, um, you know, what they were fundamentally doing Uh, seemed to violate the terms of service of a number of different places, so much so that they were offline, I think, for a month. Um, They're back now. They found a host that was willing to let them do what they're doing. That host clearly has an internet connection that's willing to allow them to do what they're doing. So you get the idea, right? It just requires a fair amount of of awareness Mm -hmm. of exactly what the rules are with whomever it is you're purchasing your service from. 
you're always purchasing a service from somebody. Yeah. And it's important to have, you know, your backup plans. I think you do. And I know I do for mm-hmm. just about everything, even sure. you know, a lot of my videos are at YouTube. Uh, I think, well, if something were to go south there, mm-hmm. uh, there's Vimeo, you know, that's mm-hmm. my backup plan. Right. Um, I've got my podcast stuff. I hosted at one server, one place. I'm actually using archive.org to do that. So I'm archiving and putting the podcast up for people to use, but I have, you know, a plan if I couldn't, you know, they changed the rules or something and I couldn't do that anymore. It's like, I, I, I would have to just start thinking right then I've got a plan. And when I see somebody doing something like, you know, setting up a web service. Um, oh, I found a good web host. You know, it's like, well, okay, what's your, and what's your backup web host? Right. <laughs> you know, if you had to suddenly move, uh, have that, you know, know exactly where you'd go without having to start from scratch and research it. Um, or even if in a Facebook example, um, you know, I, I see this, I think the, the, uh, the example that I hate the most is that when a school will say, oh, all the parents should join this Facebook group. And that's how we'll, communicate with you. It's like, oh no, <laughs> what if you don't have that anymore? What if suddenly that goes away? Right. Have a backup plan, have everybody's email address somewhere, have everybody know that if the face, something goes south on Facebook, that here's how we can communicate and get information to you right away. You know what, go to our website. You know, if, if you can't find it on, on there, go to our website, always have a backup plan right. um, of what your next step is. And uh, you know, whether it's Amazon web services, uh, another host, um, anything. Yeah. I think it's, it's pretty key to, to, um, especially if, you know, it's one thing, if it's your hobby or if it's just a play website, it, the, 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 the downtime, the, the problem, whatever it is may or may not affect you all that dramatically. On the other hand, if it's your living, if it's your business, if you're self-employed, like you're running askleo.com, um, or, or you're running an important social site for your, um, for your constituency. Um, yeah, you need to, have thought of this kind of stuff. Um, I know that in my case, um, if liquid web just disappeared someday, um, out of the blue Mm -hmm. without warning, Mm -hmm. uh, it would be a very stressful 48 hours, but that's about what I think it would take for me to, um, reconstruct my website, um, and have it back up and running, um, you know, somewhere else. Uh, and that's just one of those things that I think anybody that has any kind of an online service, um, or online presence, really needs to think about, especially when it comes to Facebook. Because again, you and I hear this all the time. The most popular most popular article on Ask Leo these days is how do I get my Facebook password back? Or how do I get back into my hacked account? Um, if your hacked account is responsible for your business, your business presence on Facebook, and you lose it, you're done, <laughs> right? It's gone. Um, and that's just one of those things where, um, uh, you know, People do definitely need to understand um, not just who's providing their service, uh, whose land is it that they are farming, but um, you know, what, what what kind of landlords are they and what kind of rules are they going, right. to, uh, going, going to put in place should you run into trouble? Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, it extends to everything. There are, you know, people now that use Instagram as their main online presence. What if you got kicked off of Instagram? Right. People that sell things have online stores and they're completely through ebay or etsy right so well well, both uh, you can do a search you'll find plenty of examples every day of people getting kicked off of ebay and etsy not even for doing anything that bad you know they didn't it's not like oh they were tempting fate there it's they they made a mistake and you know what's their backup plan 
Right. If you get kicked off of one of those services, right. whether it's an organization or a business or whatever it is. And don't get me wrong, these services, the Ebays, the Etsy's, the Shopify's, mm -hmm. the AWS's, the Bluehost's, the Liquid Web's, they're all good services, right? Yeah. They all provide valuable services to their customers. Um, and and um, you know, I've used most of them at one point or another. The problem isn't that they are in any way capricious or bad players. It's that stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Stuff happens and you need to be prepared. Uh, much like um, you know, I preach backing up of your PC all the time. Hard disks die sometimes without notice. You know what? Accounts disappear sometimes without notice. Yep. Sometimes there are ways to get them back. Sometimes there aren't. And if it's your business, if it's your livelihood, um, you better have a backup plan to be able to uh, to recover from that. Uh -huh. Anyway, um, I think that's that's a, a good overview of AWS. Um, as we move forward into these deep dives, once again, I'm really interested in hearing from our listener, <laughs> hi listener, that um, what kinds of topics would be interesting uh, to, again, give this kind of a treatment. We did one, I think it was about three episodes ago on uh, VPNs, this one on AWS. We'll see if we can't come up with a few more in the future, but yep. um, that's, um, um, that's this one. So our Ain't It Cool section, we're just going to have it be completely taken over by something that was amazingly cool this week. Gary, yes. why don't you go ahead? Well, uh, of course, uh, anybody that's, been, that's not living under a rock knows that the coolest thing going on this last week is Perseverance, uh, the new Mars mission, and how it successfully landed on Mars. There's so much cool here. I mean, <laughs> let's see. We've got how it landed, right? I mean, who would have thought with all the different landing mechanisms that have come up over the years, you know, of just landing a, a spaceship on a planet to drop, having it surrounded by a balloon and having it bounce on the surface, uh, all these different things that it seems like maybe the best thing to do is to actually use a sky crane. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, once you look at it and you say, oh, yeah, that makes sense, because then you can have this frame that's above the thing that you're landing that has the thrusters on it. It lowers down the object and you could actually land a rover on Mars. You know, in the past, if you look at some of the past rovers, there's actually a box that lands on Mars and the box opens up and the rover comes out. Here, the tires actually landed on the ground. Right. Um, so that was super cool. That whole thing about how it, it used uh, basically uh, lots of software to uh, land itself to pick a good landing spot and land and do the whole sky crane thing without uh, getting instructions from Earth because speed of light make, mean, means that everything's delayed by 11 minutes. Um, and it only takes seven minutes to land on Mars. Right. So basically, for me as a computer scientist, uh, I was super thrilled that, you know, it was computer science's time to shine, really, because, you know, if it was a pilot landing on Mars, they'd have to land once. A computer scientist has to do it a million times because they have to design software <laughs> that has to deal with anything. You know, what if the landing site's got some rocks and what if they need to go over here or over there and all this stuff. So super cool landing. The, the thing itself, super, it's a it's a big rover, not a tiny thing like we've done in the past. Uh, it could... Uh, it's got plutonium as fuel, <laughs> so it's not relied on so relying on solar panels um, for fuel uh, to you know char charge up the batteries and do all its stuff. And mm -hmm. a ton of tools. It's got a ton of cameras that could do things that cameras didn't do in the past, like take video 
which, you know, you don't think about it, but it's like, oh yeah, take pictures on Mars. Well, what about video? Like, what would we see if we actually have video where you can actually see dust moving right. in the scene? And it's not only doing that, but it's doing 360 degree video. And it's already given us some of that. Um, it's got a, uh, a drone attachment that comes off and can fly around and take pictures and then land back onto the rover. Um, it's got uh, tons of tools, the ability to uh, take samples from the ground, drill into the ground, take samples, put them into these sterile containers and drop them on the surface. And there's a second mission planned for 10 years from now that is actually going to land in this spot and then gather up these things and shoot them back up to earth. <laughs> so many cool things, so much cool science to be done. And it's working so well. The, the pictures and the video are just amazing of what we're seeing. And uh, there was a, uh, great a video, video released yesterday, I think it was. We're recording this on Tuesday. I think it got released on Monday. Um, and again, link in the show notes for sure. Of um, So a, as Gary mentioned, when this was all happening, by the time we saw it start on Earth, mm -hmm. it was already over on Mars. Right, mm -hmm. it, it was a seven-minute process, and it takes eleven minutes to get the information back to us. Uh, so we did not necessarily see things happening in real time. What they've done is, while the while it was um, landing, while it was going through this, as they call it, these seven minutes of of uh, of terror, they were shooting video. And several cameras, in fact, were shooting several angles as the device came down. Uh, and it, actually, they took some angles that I didn't even realize that they were planning on doing. Uh, so what they did, Yen, what they released yesterday was all of these videos synchronized with the audio commentary that was happening 11 minutes later, um, obviously on Earth. So it it's all looks like it's like real-time commentary on exactly what's going on. And the video is stunning. It just is stunning. You get to see Mars approach. You get to see the dust get blown away by the engines, the cameras, not only on the sky crane looking down at the rover, but at the rover looking back up at the sky crane. You get to see both of those views. Um, you get to see the sky crane fly off. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's done with its job, um, there's just a lot of really, really cool stuff in um, uh, in this video that was released yesterday. So that's, um, yeah, yeah, ain't it cool? Even the parachute was cool. The parachute, which we saw in the video, had, it was a, a strange red and white pattern. And it was an encoded message that it only took a few hours for the first person to decode it. And it was actually encoded in binary, uh, dare mighty things. Really? Which is like JPL's kind of uh, motto. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember and, that they encoded yeah. something on Curiosity's wheels, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I didn't realize about the parachute. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a 10, 10 bit code <laughs> for dare mighty things in the parachute. But I, I'm just amazed because it looks so clear. You, you see this, and your mind wants to say, oh, this is like, footage from the desert out in Nevada or something. Because right. it, you know, it's a desert scene and all that. It's like, no, this is another planet. Yeah. This is Mars. The other piece that and I thought was amazing, super cool was that for various reasons, I wasn't at home when the landing was happening. Mm -hmm. and in fact, um, I posted about this on my Facebook page that um, I happened to be 
um, on a ferry boat in the middle of Puget Sound, uh, just outside of Seattle, when this was all going on. So I whipped out the little computer that lives in my pocket, known as my mobile phone, um, and we were watching these pictures coming from Mars live-ish, I mean, with the 11-minute delay, um, out in the middle of, of nowhere, right? It's just, it's just the amount of technology that all comes together. You're watching pictures live from Mars that were taken just a few minutes ago. It's just mm. crazy. Yeah, amazing. And it's got to continue to keep giving us amazing stuff. And I love also how it's being covered on social media. I mean, think of the first, the first thing that we landed on Mars, the Viking uh, you know, lander mm-hmm. in what, 76 or whatever. Something like that. I, I mean, if you want to understand that, you basically had to wait till six o'clock and have Walter Cronkite explain it to you. Right. <laughs> um, but today you've got uh, social media people on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, everywhere, making their own videos, showing what they think is cool, showing the NASA footage, which of course it's government footage so they can show it freely and all this stuff. And you have just, you know, I just have to think a ton of people of all ages, uh, you know, being able to tune in and find out what's cool and interesting and learn about it um, in all sorts of different ways. It, it may have, it may have been the most kind of widely broadcast watched, uh, you know, space thing that we've done since the, since the original moon landing, thanks to social media and how, um, how, you know, so many people can, can basically build their own little stories around this and talk about it. Right. There's no, there's no single or few gatekeepers anymore to the information. The people that help people that were involved in it are able to talk about it publicly. They're able to post knowledgeable information directly from the source. And that's just not something we've had in the, you know, in even, yeah, even people I've seen uh, things on TikTok from scientists that are not at JPL. They're not there on the crew and part of NASA's PR campaign, mm-hmm. but they are like, "Oh, I have this little thing to do with it. I I worked on this project two years ago, and it some of that technology went into this, or I'm going to be working on some of the th- some of the data that comes back." You know, which is just, just amazing. And then the great thing is people can ask them questions. I've already seen them respond. Sure. So, oh, somebody asked me about how the how does the plutonium energy you know thing work on? Well, here's how it works. And it's like, wow, you couldn't you couldn't have asked Walter Cronkite 1976 how that <laughs> you know something worked. You know, but now you know we have that. It would have been a long distance call. It would have cost yes. you extra money. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. let's see. Um, to transition off to a couple of our own things, uh, yeah. one of the articles that I would really love people to uh, to pay some attention to on Ask Leo is something that I just find wonderfully inspirational um, along the same lines as the, uh, uh, the, the Mars rover, except in a different direction. Um, there is a blogger here in the Seattle area who has been blogging, I think now for about four or five years. Uh, she just turned 99. And the article I wrote uh, is three important life lessons from a 99-year-old blogger. It's askleo.com slash 129507. I just find her incredibly inspirational. She's one of those blogs that I read. She talks about what she knows. She talks about getting older, um, coping with the various things that are happening to her. Um, It's, um, like I said, very inspirational, not just for anybody who hopes to get older, but also uh, one of the things that I struggle with from time to time is uh, are the number of people who are uh, facing technological problems and tell me that they're quote unquote too old. 
Um, and which is what real, what it's really ironic, of course, is when they're younger than me. But um, I, I just love her as an inspiration, um, as somebody real who's doing real things with technology and making great use of it and being an inspiration for others. Excellent. I've, I'll just post one of my normal videos. I love doing videos on, on numbers. For some reason, I always like spreadsheets. Um, they were my least popular videos. <laughs> <laughs> but they're usually the ones I, I get the most, or oh, I'd like to see more like this. Keep okay. posting videos and you know comments like that, but then you know the, the overall numbers are smaller. Anyway, I have twenty five things you didn't know you could do with Mac numbers. Just quick little like here's like a function you didn't know existed. Here's a little cool keyboard shortcut that makes something easier and stuff like that. So I posted a, po I'll post that video here as our blatant self promotion for the episode. Cool. Um, and yeah, just as kind of a friendly reminder, we are also kind of sort of indirectly sponsored by This Is True. They provide the hosting for the uh, tehpodcast.com website and the uh, the podcast hosting. And uh, and our, uh, what do we want to call it? Spiritual advisor is yes, um, <laughs> freeprintable.net um, uh, and um, uh, fax zero that Kay does. Mm -hmm. So. With that, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh128. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast, or you can leave a comment on that show notes page. If Facebook or Twitter ever boot us, you know we've got that faith, our own show notes page as a backup. As always, thanks for listening, and we will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.